Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Hey everyone, I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to this week's episode of Finance Explained. This week, I've got three major financial headlines for you. First, earnings season got off to a roaring start last week, with most major companies beating analyst expectations for earnings, pushing the stock market to yet another new all-time high on Friday. Two, those inflation concerns I've been talking about? Last week, we got some actual data that validates them as the Bureau of Labor Statistics released the March Consumer Price Index, up 2.6% over the last year. And finally, March retail sales numbers came out last week too, and were up nearly 10% from February, boosted by those stimulus checks that went out last month. But the big question is, will that continue in April? After that, ahead of this week's housing market data releases, we'll take a deep dive into what drives the housing market. Every day I get questions asking if the housing market is in another bubble if prices are going to crash again, like back in 2008. I'm going to walk through the factors supporting current demand against a building supply shortage that explains exactly why it's not a bubble, and I don't foresee a housing market crash coming anytime soon. Now let's talk about the three headlines of the week. Up first, last week's financial markets performance. Welcome to earnings season. If the first two weeks of April were relatively quiet, last week was anything but, as Q1 2021 earnings season got underway with more than 100 companies reporting results. Mostly solid earnings reports, as well as strong outlooks by management teams for the rest of the year, gives credible data points of an economic recovery definitely underway, while interest rates continue to soften from their early April highs, giving the market room to run, with all indices and sectors showing solid gains for the week. One sector where we saw the biggest earnings upside surprises? Financials. We saw large upside surprises to earnings from the major banks last week. This is almost entirely due to reversals of reserves they took a year ago in preparation for rising delinquency rates on their loan portfolios anticipated during the pandemic. Heading into the pandemic, they expected more people and businesses to default on their loans, and so you may recall a year ago, during Q1 2020 earnings season, they all began booking losses to increase reserves ahead of that. To date, These defaults have not materialized to anywhere near the degree anticipated, so they are now reversing them. This positively impacts earnings in the current quarter, but are typically normalized out of earnings by analysts, given they are not part of ongoing operations and aren't expected to contribute to earnings going forward. The S&P 500 closed the week at a new all-time high Friday for the third consecutive week in a row. The market finished the week up 1.4% and is now up 11.4% year-to-date. Tech and growth stocks continue to outperform with softening interest rates, and the NASDAQ was up 1.4%, while growth stocks were up 1.8%, 
after they'd underperformed with rising interest rates for most of the start of the year. I still believe interest rates softening over the last couple weeks is just a temporary pause and not a trend expected to continue, particularly given growth and inflation expectations, which brings me to our next headline. Let's talk about inflation. We've been tracking closely indices for inflation as concerns about higher inflation have continued to increase. The Consumer Price Index, or CPI, for March was released last week and now clearly shows the inflation we have all been anticipating. For March, CPI for all items was up 2.6% over the last year, with food prices up 3.5%, energy prices up more than 13%, and all else ex-food and, ex-food and energy, also known as core CPI, up 1.6%. Over the last 12 months, weak energy comparisons have served to offset increasing prices in other sectors like food. We've all felt our grocery budgets feel the impact of increasing prices. But from here forward, as long as energy prices remain where they are or increase, they will continue to serve as a tailwind, driving inflation. It's important to realize also that energy prices impact far more than just your utility bills or the gas you put in your car. They add to the cost of almost every single consumer good due to rising transportation prices. The Fed now uses the PCE price index as their official measure of inflation. The March PCE price index values will be out at the end of the month but historically they track the CPI fairly closely. If inflation runs too high for too long, the Fed will act to raise interest rates in order to stabilize market prices. But the Fed has said it targets 2% long-run average inflation, and given inflation has been below 2% over the last year, they will allow it to run above 2% for some period of time before raising interest rates particularly given other objectives like full employment, aren't quite there yet. This brings me to March retail sales that also came out last week. The U.S. Census Bureau releases an estimate of U.S. retail and food services sales each month. Why do these matter? They give us the first indication each month of how consumer spending is doing, And you may recall that consumer spending represents 70% of our overall economy. Everyone expected retail sales to be strong, fueled by the third round of stimulus checks that went out last month. And they were. $619.1 billion on a seasonally adjusted annualized basis, up 9.8% versus February. If we look at just the last three months, you can see where stimulus checks boosted January spending above the long-term trend line. February was just coming back towards reality, but another round of stimulus in March boosted sales well above the trend line again. Across major categories, retail, excluding restaurants, was up 9.4% versus February. Auto was up over 15 and restaurants were up 13.4%, while grocery stores were up just under 1%. One of you asked me how that's possible given rising food prices. It's basically a shift back towards restaurants from the grocery store. 
as in addition to stimulus checks, health restrictions have also begun being lifted in many states. So absent food price increases, grocery store sales would likely have been negative. On a year-over-year comparison, growth levels are extreme. Remember, this is comparing stimulus-boosted March 2021 numbers versus a half a month of total lockdown in March of 2020. Overall retail sales were up 27.7%, with retail sales excluding restaurants up almost 27%, auto was up a whopping 71% versus a year ago, and restaurants are up 36%, while grocery stores were down nearly 12 Remember, last March, the whole country basically came to a screeching halt mid-month. Grocery store sales soared as restaurants closed completely and people began hoarding food and supplies. That comparison makes for some pretty wild year-over-year growth numbers. Now remember, the U.S. government issued more than 90 million stimulus checks worth a total of $242 billion in March. That, in combination with accelerating vaccination rates and many states easing back on health restrictions, is driving a healthy recovery in retail spending. We will have to see how the trend continues into 2021, absent further stimulus. If the stimulus has done its job, the boost in consumer spending we saw in March should drive businesses to hire more people, improving the labor market, getting people off of unemployment, and boosting overall consumer confidence to keep the spending and the economy going. This week, given the popularity of the live Q&A sessions I hold on Instagram, I've added a new segment to the podcast featuring a listener-submitted question straight from one of you. And here is the first one. Hi, Family Finance Mom. I'm a 52-year-old mom, married mom of two. I live in Sugarland, Texas. And thank you for your podcast. I'm going to leave a great review and subscribe to it. But my question is about a Roth IRA. I have an old 401k that I'm converting to a traditional IRA, and then I guess I want to do a backdoor Roth. And my question is, is there a limit how much you can contribute when you do the back door, are you limited to the 6,000 or 7,000 if you're over 50 if you do the back door? I, we are under the income limit that we could do a regular Roth, so I'm doing that, but I don't know if I'm going to be capped out when I do the back door to try and convert this IRA from my 401k into a Roth. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. This is such a great question. The short answer is with a backdoor Roth IRA conversion, the standard annual contribution limits do not apply. You can roll over that old existing 401k into a Roth as much as you want at one time, even if it's more than the annual contribution limit. It also does not limit your ability to contribute the annual limit this year. But here's what you need to also know. You have to pay taxes on everything you are converting that you haven't paid taxes on yet. Since I'm assuming your old 401k is a traditional retirement account and the contributions were made with pre-tax income, you will owe income taxes on those funds as well as any gains in the year you converted. So make sure you're prepared for that tax bill. 
To catch listeners up on some of this terminology and why this can be an attractive maneuver despite the tax bill, traditional retirement accounts allow you to make pre-tax contributions, saving you on your taxes today. But in retirement, you will pay taxes on the withdrawals as ordinary income. Roth retirement accounts, and today there are Roth 401ks as well as Roth IRAs, you make contributions after taxes. So there's no tax savings today, but you never pay taxes again. You pay no taxes on the withdrawals in retirement, so all the gains are completely tax-free. And if, like many people, you believe that tax rates in the future will be higher than tax rates today, it can be a solid financial decision. So why the backdoor conversion? Two reasons. First, in this case, up until recently, most employers only offered traditional 401ks. So to get the benefits of a Roth, you have to do a backdoor conversion from that traditional retirement account. Or the second reason, there's an income limit on direct contributions to a Roth IRA, and a backdoor conversion allows you to get around it, and it's entirely legal. So how does the backdoor conversion work? All the funds put into a Roth IRA have to be after tax, so you would request a rollover from your traditional retirement account, whether it's a 401k or IRA. You pay the taxes due and then put it into the Roth IRA. Know that you will owe the taxes on the amount converted in the year of the conversion and your marginal income tax rate will apply. If you can't contribute to a Roth IRA directly due to the annual income limitation, you just contribute to a traditional IRA annually first and then immediately roll it over. Again, you'll owe taxes on that contribution as well. Now for this week's deep dive. What is going on in this wild housing market? On Instagram, I host live Q&A on Wednesdays and Fridays, and almost every session someone asks if housing prices are going to fall soon or if the housing market is in another bubble like a decade ago and is there a new crash coming soon. Later this week, we'll be getting the latest numbers from the housing market on existing home sales and new home sales for March as the spring selling season gets underway. But ahead of that, since many of you are in the market right now, I want to talk about what actually drives the housing market and whether or not now is a good time to buy a house. Like every other market out there, the housing market is driven by supply and demand, and the market price for homes is set by the intersection of those two curves. Now, there are numerous factors impacting both supply and demand, pushing demand up while supply is down both of which cause an increase in market prices. And that's why we're seeing home prices up double digits in local markets almost nationwide. So let's walk through those factors and put some hard data around it for you. Back at the start of the pandemic, a rather extreme market shock hampered the normal function of the housing market, limiting transactions while pushing up prices. No one wanted to list their house and have strangers traipsing through it at the start of lockdown. For those who needed to move, homes were in short supply, and this boosted prices. But that trend has persisted, with real estate listings, 
the effective housing supply measure, continuing to drop precipitously. But what's at play here goes well beyond just the last 12 months. So let's dig into the longer-term trends underlying the housing market and where they are headed in the coming months and years. Because the current market dynamic has been over a decade in the making and will take years to sort out too. Let me start with the housing demand side of the equation. Housing demand is driven in the long run by household growth, but in the shorter term, demand can be impacted by the mortgage market. The biggest long-term driver of demand in the housing market is household growth. The more households we have, the more houses we need. And household growth is driven by two key factors, population growth and demographics. Over the last 60 years, the U.S. population has grown steadily, though the growth rate has slowed from 1.4% to less than half that, at now about 0.65% annually. However, it is still growing, and in particular, there are three critical demographic factors that make households grow faster than the overall population. First, the echo boomers. Millennials are often referred to as the echo boom of the baby boomers. The baby boomers are a population bubble resulting from children born after the end of World War II during the 1950s. And the millennials are their children, creating a second population bubble. Millennials are now hitting prime household formation and home buying age. They're getting married, having children, and ready to settle down in homes they own. In addition, their parents, the baby boomers, they're living and staying in their own homes longer. Both these demographic trends add to the demand for housing and boost household growth. Second, smaller households. Further adding to the housing growth are that fewer people now live in every household. In the 1960s, the average household was 3.3 people, with nearly one quarter of every of households having five or more people. Today, Households average two and a half people, with fewer than 10% of households having five or more people. All of the shift from larger families has been to one and two person households. Now, household size does tend to tick up temporarily for a year or two following recessions, and you can see that already for 2020. You know, you might lose your job and move back in with your parents until you get back on your feet. This potentially might alleviate some demand pressures, but the long-term trend continues to be towards smaller households. Lastly, homeownership rates. More people own homes today. While we are far from the inflated ownership peak of the 2000s housing bubble, an increase in homeownership also drives increased demand for homes. We often see a prolonged downturn in this rate during and after recessions driven by a financial crisis, like the Great Recession back in 2008. But it's really important to remember that the current recession is not a financial crisis. Banks' balance sheets, as evidenced by the reversals of reserves for losses in the most recent quarter, are in great shape. If anything, they want to lend more. So I don't expect this to be a persistent trend coming out of the current recession, 
but only time will really tell for sure. But most importantly, as you look back at all these factors supporting household growth, there's no huge deviation from any long-term trends like the bubble in homeownership we saw back in the early 2000s. The population is growing, household size is steadily decreasing, and there is a population bubble in prime household formation age, all of which supports increased demand for housing. Now let's talk about the shorter-term demand driver, interest rates. Interest rates also play a role in the demand for housing. When rates fall, it makes mortgages less expensive and homes more affordable. It may even make people willing to buy more expensive homes because, with a lower interest rate, they can afford a bigger purchase price for the same monthly payment than they could have afforded at a higher interest rate. Mortgage rates are highly correlated with 30-year U.S. Treasuries, and as Treasury rates have dropped during the recession, mortgage rates have followed. Mortgage rates hit all-time historic lows last year, but since the start of 2021, as market interest rates have increased, mortgage rates have too. However, they still remain near historic lows, and demand for mortgages both to buy homes and to refinance, is high. Demand for mortgages was extremely high through most of 2020. However, this high demand is tempered by lenders tightening their standards for mortgages. Last spring, hundreds of my followers shared their mortgage and refinancing experiences. Many reported longer processing times than normal, stricter appraisals, lower loan-to-value requirements for refinancings, and multiple employment verifications both during the process and even following the closing. Lenders were super nervous about borrowers losing their jobs at the height of the pandemic, and some borrowers were even asked to sign waivers that they won't use forbearance on new mortgages. Lending standards are especially tightening for loans that do not qualify for government protections. So why are lenders tightening these standards? To protect themselves against defaults. Historically, defaults spike during and following recessions due to high unemployment. And at the current historically low mortgage rates, lenders can't afford to lend without being cautious. These tighter lending requirements are the one area tempering demand for houses in the current market. We have seen defaults tick up very slightly already, but the widespread availability of forbearances, as well as the generally higher credit quality associated with most mortgages today, is likely to keep defaults at a minimum, at least for now. Also, over the coming months to year, as the labor market continues to improve, we might even see that spur further demand for homes and mortgages. So, On the demand side of the equation, overall, long-term trends support strong demand for housing, and the short-term benefits of lower interest rates does too. And if we use our supply and demand curves, increased overall demand for housing pushes the demand curve up and to the right, resulting in more homes sold at higher market prices. Now let's talk about housing supply. Housing supply basically boils down to two components, new housing completions added to the housing stock 
and existing home inventory. Let's start with the new construction. Historically, we have seen housing completions completions exceed household growth by about 30% annually. This is necessary in order to replace deteriorating or dilapidated housing stock. However, ever since the Great Recession, we've seen a dramatic falloff in new construction. And since that downturn, housing completions have been below what is needed to even just meet household growth. For more than a decade now, we haven't built enough new houses. This has created a building housing supply shortage, especially at the middle and lower ends of the housing market. Entry-level homes where demand is greatest, there's just not enough new construction being done. According to Freddie Mac, the leading government-backed mortgage lender, they estimate the housing shortage increased to 3.8 million units at the end of 2020 versus long-term demand. The main driver of this housing shortfall? The long-term decline in the construction of single-family homes. So how does this impact the existing home inventory? Active listings, the measure of home inventory that is currently available for sale, has been trending down for the last several years, even as demand for housing increases. This trend accelerated dramatically during the pandemic, creating a bit of a vicious cycle. The pandemic brought even steeper declines to active listings as sellers were staying home during quarantine and less likely to want to open their homes for showings and to buyer traffic. And as one local realtor pointed out, even sellers who would like to move or upgrade to a bigger home can't find anything on the market, so they aren't listing their existing home if they have nowhere to go. To put it in perspective for you, current listings for March were down 52% versus March 2020 and down almost 60% versus March of 2019. March and April typically set the tone for the spring and summer selling season when the real estate market is most active, so we would expect listings to be picking up right now. This short supply paired with high demand is pushing prices up mostly organically as more buyers are competing for fewer homes. This is why you're seeing things like multiple offers on every home above the listing price, buyers willing to buy sight unseen, waiving things like inspection and appraisal contingencies. Homes are selling faster with median days on the market also down double digits and fewer and fewer homes seeing any type of price reduction versus listing price with most realtors anecdotally reporting far more sales over listing price. How else do we know there's a housing shortage? Vacancy rates. This is the housing for sale that lies vacant. At the start of 2020, we saw homeowner vacancy rates that we hadn't seen since the 1970s. So far, vacancy rates have remained at these historically low levels. During the Great Recession after the housing bubble burst, we saw homeowner vacancy rates reach nearly 3%. Current rates are hovering at or below 1%, an indicator of extremely tight supply. So, on the supply side of the equation, we see a reduction in new housing stock and fewer active listings, meaning low supply. If we go back to our economic supply and demand curve, 
This means the supply curve has shifted down and to the left, resulting in fewer homes sold at higher prices. And the end result? As of February, median sales prices on existing homes was $313,000, up almost 16% versus just a year ago. I hear from many of you who may be first-time home buyers or who have been trying to save to buy a home for a while that you feel extremely discouraged or are worried about buying right now because prices are rising so much. Here's what I want you to know. Current market dynamics support these price increases. This is not false or inflated demand from loose lending standards or for to people who can't really afford their mortgage. And there's truly a supply shortage, and we literally cannot build 4 million homes overnight. Currently, we're building homes at about the rate of 1.4 million homes a year, and that's just to meet current demand. We will need more labor and materials to build more faster and close that supply gap, and that all takes time to happen. These impacts are also most true at the entry level to middle price portions of the market. Two last key points I want to remind you all of. One, real estate is local. And two, buying a house, like any major investment, should be a decision that you make for the long term. Realtor.com provides many of the metrics I shared here on a national level, broken down by major metropolitan areas, by county, and even down to zip code. If you are in the market for a home, I would highly encourage you to check out the real estate data for your area of search to know just how competitive the market is in your area. Price points points also vary dramatically by market and region. Median home prices are highest in the West, where they're nearly $500,000, and cheapest in the Midwest at just $231,000. Always remember that real estate is local and to know the details in your market. A great realtor can absolutely help you with this. To the second point, remember that you are buying a house to make a home. Most of us aren't doing it to flip it and make a huge profit in a short amount of time. We're looking to live and raise our families there for a while. Be sure to frame your purchase decision through that lens and think about where the market will be over the long term, not just in the next 12 to 24 months. However, if you don't plan to be somewhere for a while, then this heated competitive market may not be the right time to buy for you. If you want to see all the metrics I talked about here in chart form with their extended histories, be sure to check out the links in the show notes. It will also take you to more resources on buying a home including how to figure out how much house you can actually afford. This is such an important data point to stay grounded around, especially in this current environment. That's it for this week's deep dive. Be sure to keep an eye out for the latest on the housing market in this week's economic data. I'll definitely be covering it in my Instagram stories, so if you don't already, be sure to follow me there at Family Finance Mom. Have a question about the economy or financial markets you'd like to hear covered on Finance Explained? Leave me a voice message. Just click the link in the show notes to record a message with your question or topic of interest, and I just might feature you on our next episode. 
Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to catch each weekly episode of Finance Explained. I'd also love and appreciate your reviews. They are really critical for new podcasts especially. Thanks so much for your support. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures.